0: Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some tough topics and uh, sometimes some fun topics, sometimes just downright informative topics. And I think that's what we have today. We have a very informative topic with Dr. Gail Beck. Gail, may I call you Gail? Sure. Okay, thank you for joining us. Again, you've been a guest on our show before. And uh, I I appreciate it so much. And we decided at that point that you were going to come back and talk about a subject near and dear to my heart, which is the emotional and mental health consequences of interpersonal violence, intimate partner violence, as they pertain to the workplace. Now, we've had a lot of discussion about the fallout and the consequences of domestic violence, and we're going to refer to it that way because some people are more familiar with that term, um, of, of IPV or domestic violence as it pertains to the individual or to the family or to the children. But rarely do we talk about the fallout when it comes to the survivor or the victim's role in the workplace and what it means in the workplace. Gail, how did you come to uh, be knowledgeable about this topic and be interested in, in doing this work?
1: I have studied the aftermath of trauma for probably the better two-thirds of my career. And um, about 10 years ago, I realized that women who had experienced domestic violence or intimate partner violence um, really had been, I don't know, understudied by psychologists. Um, and not really recognized as trauma survivors um, in sort of the larger scientific literature. And so I started um, taking a look at mental health consequences of IPV exposure, exposure to intimate partner violence. And was really, um, initially was really shocked at the super broadband effect that intimate partner violence has on women. Okay.
0: When we're talking intimate partner violence, we're not talking just physical violence, are we?
1: Not at all. Not at all. We know that, um, and the reason I'm using intimate partner violence as opposed to domestic violence is that domestic violence is a a broader category. Um, Mm -hmm. Domestic violence can uh, refer to violence and abuse that's, um, experienced at the hands of somebody, typically somebody that you live with. So that could be your parents or a sibling, or you know, depending upon how many extended family members you're living with, it could be someone other than a romantic partner. When we're talking about intimate partner violence and abuse, we typically are talking about physical violence, which is what most people associate with IPV, but we're also talking about psychological abuse and sexual harm. So, psychological abuse is often thought of as um, exerting domination and intent to control someone. So, you know, recording um, how long it takes her to get home from work and if she takes an extra five minutes, accusing her of, um, you know, cheating on you or something like that. Um, Psychological abuse also can include um, threats. Um, Usually these are threats to harm the person or someone in the person's family. Um, And as well, the other sort of typical thing that we hear about is um, running down. You know, you're fat and ugly and no one would want you. So it's psychological abuse, physical abuse, and sexual harm that we're talking about in this umbrella of IPV. Okay. All right. And certainly, uh, we're familiar with
0: some of those, those behaviors. I mean, we've talked a lot on this show with a number of experts about the behaviors that go into intimate partner violence. I prefer to use the term intimate partner abuse, but nobody in the industry has asked me what I prefer. <laughs> but, um, yeah. uh, but abuse, I think, is uh, when you say violence, I think people tend to think of the broken bones and the black eyes. Whereas it really is it of course it, it it can include that as well, but it's that abusiveness that I think is so detrimental to so many women at least in the studies that i 've read so um for, you know, purposes of, of folks, most of the folks who listen to the show are pretty pretty knowledgeable about IPV, but just in case uh, we've got some newbies out there, um, it, we're talking about abusive behavior, not necessarily physically harmful behavior or at least physically aggressive behavior. It can be really damaging to experience that, uh, as you mentioned, the threats, the degrading, you know, the uh, the spiritual beating beatdown, if you will. So, okay, so you um, uh, prefer to use the term IPV, so we'll use that one. And why do you think it's been understudied? I've, I've seen a lot of studies uh, for the last 30 years that talk about uh, DV domestic violence or IPV. Why do you say it's been understudied by researchers?
1: I think it's been understudied by psychologists. So I think that in many respects that... Um, This is sort of a form of trauma that people have all kinds of ideas about, many of which are wrong, Um, that, you know, IPV only happens to women who are poor and uneducated and you know, live in a trailer out in the woods somewhere. And we know that that's (laughs) not...
0: The pack of cigarettes rolled up in his shirt sleeves, yeah,
1: yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that that's an inaccurate um, perception that intimate partner violence can affect women, you know, it doesn't matter what their educational level is, it doesn't matter what their family of origin um, income (coughs) level was when they were growing up, it doesn't matter what their race is. So... Psychologists, I think, have tended to not necessarily pay a lot of attention to intimate partner violence and abuse. I think social work and counseling perhaps um, lay some of the early groundwork. Um, And I think that's all good. I mean, we're all connected academically. But thinking about IPV as a form of trauma has been relatively new Um, and recognizing that IPV has pretty broad radiating after effects, I think, is starting to be um, more recognized when we talk about so-called social problems, because that's what domestic violence is often referred to as a social problem.
0: Um, It certainly feels like a very intimate problem when you're going through it, but it does create that fallout, doesn't it?
1: It creates a lot of fallout, Yeah.
0: Yeah, and we know from a number of studies that there is fallout from experiencing IPV. One of the studies that I prefer to quote, unfortunately I do it very casually because I I, I do have the citation somewhere, but I don't actually quote the citation, but I I was godsmacked several years ago when I read a study that indicated that as many as, now this was uh, one study that showed this number, but as many as 80% of women who experienced IPV suffered long-term consequences like PTSD. Now, most of the studies have it somewhere between 35 and 65, but that one study in particular, you know, there are several studies, you know, here and there that show it even higher. So I'm assuming somewhere around 50%, just to be on the safe side, of
1: people who go through this suffer from PTSD. And as a culture, well, we I know about... Yeah, Go ahead. Let me, let me jump in here. I think it really depends upon... Um, what methodology studies use. Many times studies use uh, self-report questionnaires, and those studies tend to report higher rates of PTSD. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that it it really benefits anyone to, um, I don't know, overestimate mental health consequences or to underestimate them. In an ideal world, studies would use... um, clinician-administered interviews with a, a clinician who knows how to differentiate some of the symptoms of PTSD from other commonly co-occurring problems like depression or elevated worry or that kind of thing. So, But I think it's fair to say that there are some pretty pronounced mental health consequences of intimate partner violence and abuse And, you know, one of the things that I really want to highlight is, and this is, you know, it's been so interesting to me, not just in in our work here in Memphis, but in talking with other researchers that um, we've all seen this and most of us haven't necessarily taken steps in our research to start to look at it. But we know that the experience of domestic violence is associated with lower income. So in our sample, for example, there's a a huge discrepancy between the educational level that our women have and the money that they're making. So and partner violence tends to be associated with the woman being either unemployed or underemployed. Um, and I think
0: that one of the One of the studies that I've seen, or a lot of the studies that I've seen that are bringing up information like you just shared with us, are only done very early on in the process. So a woman who's experiencing domestic violence or leaving domestic violence, and within a year or two, the studies are going, yep, she's depressed, yes, she has this mental health consequence, da-da-da. I haven't seen any studies, or I haven't seen very many studies, that say, well, here's this woman 10 years down the road and she's still experiencing them.
1: Right. One of the things that I think is important, and you're absolutely right, we need to get kind of a better understanding of the trajectory of what happens um, as a woman moves out of a violent relationship an abusive relationship and sort of what what the typical trajectory is. But those are called longitudinal studies, and they tend to be very expensive to do. Um, We know that like if you do cross-sectional work, which is what I do, so you take people wherever they are, um, that our rates of mental health issues are not dependent upon the amount of elapsed time that a woman spend away from an abusive romantic partner. So there's some mental health conditions that once they sort of set up shop, once, once they develop, tend not to just go away on their own Um, And so I think that, you know, in a perfect world, somebody would land a really big grant and follow people over time. Um, And I think that obviously, you know, to do that, we would have to keep pretty good track of use of various resources, um, shelters and um, community resources and vocational training and those kinds of things. Um, But to my knowledge, no one has... Funded a ten-year grant like that? Yeah.
0: Well, and in your and and that's what we need. I think. I think that's what we need uh, because the anecdotal evidence is there. I mean, uh, so many women, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five years out, are still reeling. And it has shaped their lives, what they, the experience that they went through. Um, so I'm, I really push for the those longitudinal things. I don't, there's got to be, there's got to be a way to do more of those. I think, um, in your study, and what has prompted this conversation, of course, is your study, the association of mental health conditions with employment, interpersonal, and subjective fun- functioning after intimate partner violence. That came out a couple years ago, um, but it's still very significant. Um, and in your study, um, you Describe uh, major depression and PTSD as the major fallout. And in your study, you found that the average pev- prevalence of PTSD was about 63.8%, so about 64-65%, with a range of 31% to 84% across 11 different studies. So you, I guess, looked at the same studies I did, you know, to get up into that 80-something percent. So,
1: yeah, I what think you're what you're pulling from, Heather, what you're huh? pulling from is a um- what's called a meta-analysis that was done some time ago. Um, Uh Most of those studies are self-report questionnaires. So, as I just said a minute ago, I think that we need to be careful um, when we think about um, how mental health conditions are assessed. Um, You know, I think that there's a whole array of issues that um, happen for Intimate partner violence survivors and mental health conditions are but one of those things. Um, so, you know, we didn't find that rate of PTSD using clinician um, interviews. Our rates are around 28 to 29 percent, generally speaking.
0: And can I ask you about the clinicians? Because, quite frankly, I have encountered a number of cl- clinicians who don't quite understand. What's going on with domestic violence victims? I've encountered a number, of course, who have who have a great grasp of it. But I'm wondering how selective were you in in, sele- in in choosing those clinicians? What kind of a background did they have in assessing consequences of IPV?
1: Um, I work with uh, folks who are being trained as um, doctoral students, so they're PhD students and we use a structured diagnostic interview called the Clinician-Administered PTSD Scale, which everyone calls the CAPS. Um, this is considered the gold standard diagnostic interview. It's a structured interview, and there's a pretty well-developed training protocol. So um, people go through that protocol until they you know, can demonstrate that they're rendering valid diagnoses. Um, we also In our work, pull a um, percentage of our interviews and have them the videotape watched by a second clinician who doesn't know what the first clinician, um, how the first clinician rated the person. So we're able to arrive at um, inter-diagnostician reliability um, and our values are actually pretty good. Uh, you know, we have a ICC of 0.95, which is stat talk, and I know your your listeners probably don't want to go into a whole <laughs> stat talk thing, but, you know, that's, that's the method that we use, and we are also pretty sh- careful. We use a second interview that we use to focus on other conditions, <clears throat> different anxiety disorders and depression, and we follow the same training procedure and the sort of establishing if our diagnosticians are being reliable. So I, I have pretty good confidence that our approach to understanding what the different mental health diagnoses are is um, mm-hmm. accurate. But I also want to note that, you know, when we think about diagnoses, we're thinking about yes versus no. And we know that many of these conditions <clears> – <throat> Occur on a continuum. So you can be one or two symptoms short of meeting the diagnostic criteria, but that doesn't mean that you're not struggling with that condition. You're struggling with a high level of what we call subsyndromal problems with that with that condition. And so when we start to think about conditions sort of as um, on a continuum as opposed to a yes no, I think we start to see different sorts of findings and that's one of the things that we did in this particular study that you mentioned a minute ago. Okay
0: all right so now we've laid our bed for you know um, the the prevalence or the frequency of um, some mental health issues for survivors of IPV but what are some of the others? We talked a little bit here about PTSD and depression but aren't there others?
1: There are others. Um, One condition that I think has generally been understudied in the trauma literature is something called generalized anxiety disorder. And generalized anxiety disorder is characterized by elevated levels of worry, which the person perceives to be um uncontrollable. So they tend to worry a lot. They may have trouble falling asleep because their head's really busy. They may feel really cranky or irritable when they're worrying. Um, and just generally uptight a lot. Um, Generalized anxiety disorder is a common condition that co-occurs with PTSD. It also can occur, you know, obviously by itself um, post-trauma. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Are there others? Um, In some studies you see elevated levels of substance abuse. Um, And, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me, um, I've been working with my research clinic for the last 10 years, and when we first started, we did not see a lot of, um, we saw a lot of alcohol misuse, but we did not see a lot of um, other kinds of substances being misused. And we started to, probably in the last two years, we started to see women who come in who are using Opioids or crack or other kinds of substances. So it's entirely possible that substance use over time has just ticked up in our culture or ticked up in the women that we are recruiting and mm-hmm. working with. Okay. All right. So um,
0: but we're talking about uh, let's let's talking about the the big three: the depression, PTSD, and uh, GAD. Um, what did your studies or has your research indicated are the long-term effects of that? We live in a culture, I'm going to editorialize here, but I always do that. That's, that's kind of why it's my show. Um, but we, uh, to, um, be, we're to really super saturated, empathetic for about 10 minutes, and then we expect you to think positive thoughts and move on. Does that make sense?
1: Um, I, I think you've <laughs> captured it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, we just jump through hoops to let you know how empathetic and sorry we are for you for for that ten minutes. But then, come on, there's something wrong with you. And you're and if you're if you can't shake it off, then you know you're just bringing it on yourself because you're focusing on the negative. If you just focus on the positive, you know. Um, how does that kind of an attitude? And I, and I don't know whether other cultures do the same thing, but I I know that our culture does. And how does that impact these the the progression of these mental health consequences?
1: Um I don't know of any research on that, but I do know that women who've experienced intimate partner violence, many of them experience very high levels of shame. Um, this is a pretty socially unacceptable. Uh, trauma to experience as opposed to something like, you know, a tornado or a house fire Mm -hmm. or a sexual assault by a stranger, for example. So part of what I know is that many times women are reluctant to acknowledge longstanding mental health issues. And so that there's a gap in seeking mental health services. Um, And, you know, there may be a seeking of services right after um, she's left the abusive relationship, but then sort of recognizing that, you know, something's wrong, I'm not feeling very well, may be sort of her own little secret for a while. I think it's important when we think about the long-term effects to sort of use a use a broad brush so that we understand that, you know, this happens, and the next thing happens, and the next thing happens, right? So there may be high levels of shame. The woman may be underemployed. She may be living in a really dangerous neighborhood, which means she's exposed to community violence. She may be struggling because there's a ongoing um, battle over child custody with her ex, right? So, you know, when we take the person as a whole, there's a number of things that um, are sort of... I don't know, piling on, as it were. Um, and mental health conditions are, in my head, one of the big things that piles on women. Um, and as I said, often they're reluctant to seek help because they, you know, they say, "Well, I'm just kind of crazy." You know, he was telling me for years I was crazy, and see, here's his proof I'm kind of crazy. So I'll just sort of hunker down and try to cope on my own. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the, sh- the shame, and I think
0: that, you know, again, you know, speaking with a broad brush here, um, I always say, we, our, we, we meaning our so- social group, our culture, our country, um, we tend to put responsibility for the success or failure of a relationship squarely on a woman's shoulders. And I use for proof of that, which you won't like as an academic, but makes perfect sense to me, if you go down the magazine counter, How many women's magazines have articles on how to improve your relationship, how to make him happy, how to, you know, I mean, they're just rampant with it. Even the ones that are uh, focused on career, et cetera, you're you're still going to see articles on how to improve your relationship, how to make things better in in, in bed or whatever. I have never seen a Field & Stream (laughs) or a GQ that had an article about that. Never. Once and all the times i prowled magazines i mean we put the responsibility for the success and failure of a relationship squarely on the woman so here in in the 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 worst case scenario here where you're experiencing ipv you still have that probably in you that somehow or other you couldn't make it work or you've got people telling you it's your fault because you didn't dump him sooner because you cho- chose him or whatever so that shame which I've never thought of as a mental health issue. But it is a huge mental health issue, isn't it? It it
1: frames how we live lives. I think it does, I think it does. And you know, one of the things, as I said, one of the things that I was really struck by when I first started working with this population was this huge discrepancy between what a woman's educational level was and then what she was doing employment-wise. Um, You know, we've seen women who have master's degrees who are making $30,000 a year. And I'm thinking, how does that work, right? How does that work? Because we know that poverty or, you know, not having enough money to have any real security about, like, what happens tomorrow um, just adds in another huge dose of stress for a woman who's trying to, you know, put her life back together in in a healthy way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, as much as I like to think about mental health issues, I'm also aware that, you know, sometimes there are real concrete life stressors that in and of themselves are not mental health issues, right? At the mm-hmm. same time that I was starting to sort of look at the the rates of very low income and poverty in, in our samples, um one of my community colleagues said to me, well, you know, you're always talking about mental health issues. Does it really make a difference? And I thought, what an interesting question. And so I went on to tell her all the reasons why I thought it it made a difference and went home feeling kind of peeved because of course it makes a difference. How can you even question that? And then I thought to myself, you know, we actually could look at that question, right? Does the presence of mental health conditions actually make a difference to a woman's functioning in terms of just, you know, what her income is like and what her quality of life is perceived to be and what her orientation to herself and problem solving is like? And I thought, you know, that's actually kind of an important thing to look at because I don't think we have a grasp on this low-income thing that happens for many women following IPV. You know, it's like they have a really hard time kind of getting their feet under them and, you know, getting a job that's commensurate with their background and education. And, you know, that happily ever after seems to take quite a while if, if it ever happens for, for survivors. So that was sort of the impetus of this study. And, you know, sometimes um, sometimes life hands you a reason to look at something that you wouldn't necessarily have looked at unless somebody had said something, in my perspective, it was kind of foolish, like, well, does it even make a difference? Um, and so that was kind of the, the motivation um, to say, well, do the, does the presence of these mental health conditions um, show any association with? employment or how a woman feels about herself or how she, you know, her perceptions about her quality of life and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's
0: the, co- the question, you know, the, that's the pivotal question here, is relating that to the workplace. What did you find?
1: Well, we looked at post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and generalized anxiety disorder, and the reason we looked at all three of those is that they're often co-occurring, so it didn't make sense to just look at one in isolation, and one of the things that we found was that um, depression showed pretty big associations with low levels of social support, reduced self-esteem, reduced perceptions of quality of life, and Higher levels of approaching problems with a kind of negative headset. So that's called a, a problem-solving orientation. So a negative headset for a problem-solving orientation would be, "I'll never figure this out," or um, "This just this just is always going to be a problem for me." Right. So depression is associated with you know not being connected with other people, feeling crummy about yourself. Um, Having just a poor quality of life and approaching problems negatively, you know, not saying, well, you know, I can think my way through this. Um, hmm. PTSD was associated with low self esteem and that negative problem orientation, while GAD was only associated with that negative problem orientation. Now, as a scientist, I have to say, you know, None of these things showed a significant association with um, employment, right? And so I'm Ooh. like, well, you know, that was kind of my central. That was sort of one of the the drivers of like looking at this. And so okay, so
0: I p- clarify. I want to clarify. So you said none of them showed a significant relationship with unemployment because when you worked the numbers the numbers didn't show that your employment questions were impacted by these things. Is
1: that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And I want to acknowledge up front that um, our employment measure wasn't great. You know, there were some problems with the way we assessed employment. And, you know, your, your data, your findings are only as good as your measures are. So we basically um, looked at—I um, don't know how to say this—we basically looked at the number of months that had passed since the woman had a, a paid job. So we did not look at income. We did not look at the discrepancy between education and income. We just looked at if she was employed and if she wasn't how long it had been since she had last been employed now if i were to go back and redo this um i would probably want to put in a much more fine grained measure of employment um mm-hmm. you know so that we are able to look at you know what are women actually doing in terms of jobs um are they on you know temporary jobs or are they on you know Real you know, what would be um, more stable kinds of positions you know are you just working retail for the holidays, or are you um, actually in a full time position working in a retail agency so you know I think that I think that the study that's probably the greatest weakness in this study, but I also think that this study sort of says, well, yeah, it does make a difference, it makes a difference if you have any of these mental health conditions because they reduce how you approach life, how you perceive support from other people, um, how you perceive the quality of your life. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, our findings are not necessarily in isolation. There was a, a earlier study that just looked at PTSD and it basically showed that that the more PTSD symptoms that a woman had, um, the less effective use of community resources was likely to happen. Um, and these were women in a shelter, so they were surrounded by you know, a whole range of community resources, and PTSD clearly kind of made a difference in their use of community resources in terms of immediate post-IPV experience. Mm -hmm. Well, again, that's the immediate. And when you're thinking, and
0: and I've seen, um, and and you know this is my thing. Um, I mean, there are numerous studies out there about the impact on the workplace of short-term, you know, the short-term IPV experience. There's a lot of studies on the immediate impact on the victim. There are uh, increasing studies on the long-term impact on the victim, but I have seen no studies on the long-term impact on employment.
1: I think that that would definitely be um, an interesting thing to look at. I think that, you know, just our observation of this discrepancy between educational level and income um, suggests that women, if they are working, are not working to their, what we kind of from an outside perspective would say, they're not working to their potential. I'll give you an example. We assessed a woman several years ago who has a Ph.D. Um, When she wrote down occupation, she wrote down college professor. Okay, so far so good. Then when she checked off her income, she indicated that she was making $15,000 a year. And I'm thinking, how can she be a college professor and make $15,000 a year? So we asked her. Well, what she was doing was she was working as a instructor on a semester-by-semester semester basis. And so some semesters they would give her one class to teach. Some semesters they might give her two. Um, she wasn't employed over the summer. The most she made per class was approximately $5,000, which takes us off in a whole other direction about how universities tend to tend to abuse um, temporary um, non-faculty PhDs, but that's not what we're talking about today. So that's the kind of thing where, you know, that's the kind of example that I like to use because it's, it's a great example where a woman is clearly high education. She is technically working in her field, but she's underemployed.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: In your study, you
0: said that you didn't see a lot of connections between these mental health conditions and employment, and you think that maybe you could have asked better questions that would have revealed more. But did what did you find in this study? What did you find as to the mental health fallout consequences of um, IPV and employment workplace?
1: Well, the only aspect of workplace that we looked at was the amount of time that had elapsed since the woman had last been paid, e.g. paid employment. Um, And PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, and depression were not relevant for that aspect of employment. If we were Hmm. to have used a better measure, right, because so just the amount of time that elapsed, this was, are you employed? Yes, no. And if you or not employed, how long has it been since you last were paid to work? Um, if I had a magic wand, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. My grandmother always told me that. So if I had a magic wand and go, could go back and have different measures, I would want to look at, for example, job satisfaction. I would want to look at what kind of... Um, job she's in relative to what her educational level has been so is she working as a temporary instructor despite the fact that she has a phd in english right um yeah. you know and is she is she underpaid as a result of that particular kind of job position um we've seen women who are um you know, again, with master's degrees who are working retail sales, you know. Mm-hmm. And, again, that's that's there's nothing bad about working retail sales, but it's a fairly brutal existence in terms of hours and swing schedules and all of that. And typically what we see with folks that have master's degrees is that they aim a little higher in terms of what kind of jobs they're looking for and what kind of jobs they'll mm-hmm. accept, you know. So I would think that if we're going to start to think about, you know, what are the barriers that stand in a woman's way in terms of putting together a healthy life after intimate partner violence and abuse, that trying to get a better handle on employment, um, choice of employment, what kinds of positions you will accept or apply for. um, And I do think that, that, things like shame and things like um, feeling just crappy about yourself, feeling lousy about yourself, um, do affect some of those kinds of choices and they affect people in a way that can have pretty long term consequences.
0: Okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate here though and say isn't that just kind of blaming the victim? Isn't that more of the Um, 10 minutes of social support and then it's your own fault
1: if you say it that way? I wouldn't necessarily go there. You can, but I wouldn't go there because, you know, I think that um, our culture, as you said, has the, you know, 10 minutes of thoughts and prayers are with you and then we move on down the road. But I think that if we think about what kinds of – services are available for IPV victims, we can, we can kind of see where that gap is. So services that are available tend to be like shelters and services that are available in the immediate aftermath. But if she's having mental health issues and she's not feeling terribly good about herself, there are very few longer term resources that are out there. So if you've been living with a partner who's been telling you that you're stupid and incapable and you can't do anything and no one will want you, um, why should you aim high when you apply for a job, you know?
0: Well, if you have entitled- aiming
1: than what you think you deserve,
0: and it's still not very high.
1: That's possible, yeah. So, um, you know, when I think about functioning after trauma, um, and I think, you know, some of our clearest examples we see in terms of the services that are available in the VA. When I think about functioning after trauma, we know that we need to do a whole lot more in addition to services that are available right immediately after the time of the trauma. You know, we need to provide longer range support services that help a person to sort of sort through whatever the mental health issues are, sort through any physical after effects that may be present, um, you know, sometimes women will say, well, he wouldn't let me work, and I haven't worked for 20 years. I don't have any confidence in going out and, you know, getting the kind of job I I was trained for, and I understand that, right? So, you know, when we start to think about providing longer-range support services for trauma survivors, I would you know, say the VA is kind of a nice example because they have those streams of services that run out in time. Um, unfortunately, when we talk about women who've been abused by romantic partners, we don't we don't have those services available.
0: No, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that you know, when earlier in our interview talking about. You know, recognizing and acknowledging that, that this is a long-term thing. I think in the, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, people who worked in domestic violence, the researchers and the advocates and everything, they were so focused on, you know, let's get to the bottom of this without blaming the victim, that I think that, and I, I saw this myself, that, that any time you inferred that there might be some something quote-unquote wrong with the victim, because of this, it was poo-pooed. It was shoveled aside because we didn't want to do victim blaming. This wasn't her fault. It was, you know. So we, we're not going to talk about this. We'll just kind of skirt around that issue and decide that we can give her, you know, some immediate job training or whatever, and that'll take care of the problem. So I think there was an aversion within people who are very empathetic and 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 want to be helpful uh, for survivors of domestic violence. But I think that we are just now beginning to acknowledge that, you know, we can say that this experience created these mental health issues without making it sound like, well, it was her own darn fault to start with. See, she was nuts, which is what she'd been hearing for however many years.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think that as a culture, we're growing up a little bit. So, you know, we're understanding, for example, that, you know, sexual assault is not the victim's fault because she was, of what she was wearing, where she was or what time it was. You know, we're finally at a point where, I think that in the larger culture, we're sort of saying, well, no, that's, you know, the the culpability for sexual assault falls with the perpetrator. Um, yeah. And, you know, yes, it's perfectly understandable to have um, emotional issues after you've been sexually assaulted. And I don't think it's a big walk to go from that level of understanding about sexual assault to go to, that same level of understanding about intimate partner violence and abuse. You know, you there were two things in
0: in what you said that I wanted to to talk about or revisit. Uh, one is you were talking about the um, earning potential after um, IPV. and I've been racking my brain here for the last couple of minutes trying to remember. I actually had a woman, a researcher, I think it was from Virginia, who had done a study on. Um, Income trajectory, long-term, and I forget how long-term it went out. It was either like five years, maybe. um, uh, Income trajectory after filing for a protection order.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And when she mixed all the data so that she was comparing apples to apples as far as demographic information, the income trajectory for the women, the control group who had never had uh uh, had filed for a protection order which presumably we can assume they didn't need one um that income trajectory went at a nice steady upward line the women who had applied for a a protection order it went up a little but not nearly the same
1: right right and And that's
0: that's the kind of thing we're talking about here right Exactly. So I would, let, you know, I'm writing on my notepad here to see to look her up and and uh, see if she's done follow-up studies because it's been probably two or three years since I had her on the show talking about that study. But that w- that's the kind of stuff we need. That's the kind of information we need. The other thing that I was going to mention to you is that when I did my master's thesis, I live in King County, Washington, which is, you know, a huge population county. um, And for my master's thesis, I surveyed all of the domestic violence support uh, services in this county and asked them not only the types of support and services that they offer, but how long they were offered. Mm
1: -hmm. Most
0: of those, about 90% of those, Suspended service to the victim after a year, none of them went for more than two years right that's crazy
1: that's crazy well you know, and it, some people would say you know that that year was actually generous right yes. uh, well, there well, yeah, there would be they're,
0: some they're, voices they're, they're,
1: that would say well that's those that's really generous to offer offer services for a year um mhm. But, I mean, that's part of that 10 minutes of support mentality. Um, yeah, And, you know, I think you're right. Historically, that worked for the field because we were bending over backwards kind of in a crazy way to avoid anything that could be at all construed as, quote, her fault. Um, and, you know, that that whole Way of thinking um, means that we have a number of, you know, it's the rates in this country for intimate partner violence are estimated to be about one in every four women. So that means we have a number of women who are walking around um, way below their earning potential with mental health issues that are probably unrecognized and untreated. Um, and yeah. you know that that's a a quarter of our female population, um, yeah. which is, you know, sure. it's fairly and horrifying.
0: To you you... Back to the
1: workplace, half of, you know, just
0: slightly under 50% of our workforce is female. So mm-hmm. you've got about an eighth of the, po- what you're working, your coworkers, about an eighth of the people you work with are reeling from
1: this. One of the things that I think is also important to recognize and, and, you know, the study, the researcher in Virginia or wherever she is, who is sort of looking at that, I think is on to something really important. And, you know, starting, if you think of her name, please email it to me because I think that starting to mm-hmm. look at, you know, what are the variables that affect that trajectory? Because, you know, when we look at just group averages, we lose the people that are doing really well and the people who are doing really poorly. And so starting to understand what are some of the individual difference factors that make a difference, you know, and does it matter if she has longer-term support somewhere, you know, it may not be from a formal agency, but does it matter if she had family support to go back to school, for example? Um, does it matter if she, you know, was given a, a grant um, that allowed her to, to do more vocational training or finish a degree that she'd started and never had finished, you know? So yes. thinking a bit outside of the box in terms of it's not all just about shelters, right? Because, you know, somebody's mm-hmm. been out of a, a abusive relationship for a year, she shouldn't be in a shelter, right? I mean that that just sort of fosters um you're broken, <laughs> you know, you need to be sheltered here, right? Um, And I think we need to think about what kinds of resources can we give women so that they can put together a healthy life, right? Because living a healthy, happy life is the best outcome for her, for her children, um, Mm -hmm. and for everyone involved in that family.
0: Well, and I would take it a step further. I would say that it would behoove the workplace to figure out what will support people who are dealing with this fallout from experiencing IPV. Um, You've got people, I can give you all sorts of anecdotal evidence. For example, if you have PTSD because of a word or phrase, people think PTSD is the car backfiring and the veteran dives for cover because it sounds like a gunshot. When you're dealing with IPV, PTSD is, those symptoms are different. It's a word, a phrase, an expression that throws you back there. So if you're dealing with your supervisor who is trying to give you constructive criticism, and he keeps saying the phrase, for example, "You have no idea," mm-hmm. and that was a trigger phrase for her in this abusive relationship. That as soon as she she started hearing that phrase, you know, there was going to be all hell to pay coming up any moment. That triggers her in her PTSD. But instead of diving for cover, she just zones out in her head, and her employer is looking at her, going, "She can't take criticism. She has a communication right. issue." It's written up in her evaluation, and guess what? She can lose mm-hmm. her job. So then she goes and works the, the, as a store clerk because she can get the job. I, I think it's the the consequences of this are so pervasive and so all encompassing that it really. I, I really get delighted when I see research like yours where people are just like looking at this going, okay, what can we do? What can we do about this? Um, because in our virtue as a culture, you know, <laughs> some people need more than 10 minutes. Maybe some people need 20 minutes or 50 minutes or even a couple of hours um, before they can just pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Um, so, you know, I, I, as I said, I, I, this is an issue that's, that's dear to my heart. What Are you planning on revisiting this kind of research at all in the future? What are you on right now?
1: Well, you know, we I run a mental health research clinic, and so we have focused more uh, of our efforts on a variety of mental health issues and things that contribute to that. We don't have great um, vocational-related measures, um, we 've worked with over five hundred women at this point, and that 's what I meant. If I had a uh you know magic wand, I could go back and put a much more fine tuned measure about employment um, in our database before we started um, mm-hmm. but I would love to work with somebody who you know has ongoing work in this area because I think that there's some really important um, policy implications for this kind of work. Um, yeah. That, you know, if we think about, uh, how do I say this? Many times um, women who have experienced intimate partner violence and abuse also have experienced some form of childhood abuse. So it starts to become a longer trajectory of interpersonal trauma. Um, and yeah. so if we start to think about, you know, what are the factors that, um, Predict sort of adequate or good vocational functioning because let's face it, in our culture, you know, being employed and being employed at a, at a good level where you're making a, a living wage is pretty much foundational to, you know, can you um, send your kids to school and can you put gas in your car and can you not worry about food and, you know, it has a lot of implications in terms of quality of life so i think that i would love to work for someone who's doing um ongoing work that has a a better sense of the sort of vocational economic piece than i do i'm a psychologist mm-hmm. so <laughs> that's what i do well. well
0: well keep me in mind because i'm still working on my never-ending phd um made it through the urr made it through the the orals and uh it's headed to the IRB next. Uh, at least Excellent. I hope. It seems like every time I turn around, there, there's somebody wants something else changed. I finally just said, "Please, reading this, you know, just stop <laughs> reading it. Let's, move it. okay." Um, but um, and and that's a whole different study. You know, the uh, the academic environment when you have PTSD is brutal. Yeah, I
1: think and the academic as- environment can be brutal no matter what. I mean, it's it's uh, exactly, but you it's- when
0: that PTSD and it it brings you to your knees. I mean, it is an absolute grasp of strength every time, you know, you're dealing with something um, because it just hits back with the powerlessness. So if you don't have PTSD, you already know how horrible it is, but throw in a couple of those things, you know, and it, it's just debilitating. I mean, it really is. But anyway, so my dissertation or my, my research, um, God knows if I live long enough to do it, is on the long-term um, job uh, job satisfaction or job success for women who have experienced IPV, measured by job uh, satisfaction, job turnover, underemployment, and unemployment. Good for you. So I'm thinking if I can get to, and I chose a quantitative study because I want to have actual numbers that people can look at, because I think an even even though we've made strides in research, I, I still think there's an old school component that doesn't believe it unless there, there are numbers to it. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to have that as a foundational thing that, okay, if I can, if I can show mm-hmm. that women who have experienced IPV have, you know, less job success long-term, and I'm, you know, and I'm talking at least five years in the past was your, your uh, crisis moment, and you've mm-hmm. gone five years past that, and now let's measure today. You know, how are you doing today with your job success? Um, and, you know, I, I hope, you know, I mean, obviously, you always start the the research with a thesis. And I suspect, of course, that, or with a hypothesis. And I suspect, of course, that there's a dramatic difference. So we'll mm-hmm. find out. Um, but that that's the kind of thing that I'm very interested in because it's all well and good, you know, um, to we've we spent 30 years trying to figure out what what happens and you know what what kind of shelter she needs now we need to figure out how could she have a good rest of her life
1: exactly exactly and what kinds mm-hmm. of services can we put into place at a policy mm-hmm. level that recognize and support people as they kind of journey towards health you know I mean that's that's the idea mm-hmm. so good exactly. for you Kevin. So- you've got to just stay the course on that thing.
0: Oh god it's I mean it's I I've been working on this for years years and and it just is bubbling you know I mean I, my kids were still at home when I was work started it and you know now they're grown <laughs> and married and you know, it's like I don't know I keep telling my kids I'll probably you know my luck I'll probably die 10 minutes after I get the damn thing and you know I want it on my tombstone okay Heather Stark, <laughs> PSD, okay um, <laughs> it's the least they can do but anyway so yeah and I'm very interested in in research um real strong, practical research for how can you have a good rest of of your life. Um, I I think that's what we should be focusing on at this point. So anyway, Mm -hmm. so that's me. So, okay, I'll keep your phone number. I'll call you in about two years. (laughs) Okay. Design some research projects to help women in the workplace. Gail, thank you. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, and you know, if, if you get other things in the pipeline, please let me know because it's fascinating to speak with you about it. Um, and did I miss anything? Did I did I fail to ask you about something that you think? You no, have spoken I think we.
1: I think we've touched on a variety of things. I don't can't think of anything that you need to ask me about. Um I okay. need to ask you how your research is going periodically, but that's just. Being a gentle nudge.
0: <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Well, you know, if I can get through the IRB, the the last uh, uh, email that I got, I had I worked weeks on one paragraph in the methods section. Six weeks. I finally got approval early earlier last week, and so she said she's going to send it to the committee member. And then if he gives the nod, then it's to the IRB, and then I can actually get started on this research. So I may be calling you going, help me. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do here. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Mm-hmm. But, but hopefully we'll get some good information. That's, my ho- that's the only thing that's keeping me here is, that, you know, let's, let's we need this information. We need to look at the long-term effects, and as I said, of, of how we can help people live a good life after this traumatic experience that has been so pervasive. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate your work. Thank you for joining us. And you know what? I didn't even, I didn't even give you that. You are university of Memphis, right? That's it. Okay. University of Memphis, um, Dr. Gail Beck and you are the, I'm looking at my paper here, uh, you are in the Department of Psychology at the University of Memphis. So there, I introduced you late, but I introduced you. Thank you for joining us on Three Three Ways, and join us next week for another fascinating topic. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.